the topic of bondage and deliverance is one of those things that weaves its way in and out of Israelite history and then we find it all through the Book of Mormon, particularly in the Book of Mosiah. Bondage and delivery for Alma and his people, for Limhi and his people. How do they escape and how do they get out? Mormon, on the other hand, as he's editing this great uh, amount of drama, isn't it interesting how he begins to weave in ideas of bondage as sinfulness and recovery and deliverance from sinfulness as taught by Abinadi and others. Fascinating discussion, complex as well, talking about bondage in the book of Mosiah. Join us today for interesting discussion about Alma and his people and how Alma sees not just the bondage of his people, but his own personal bondage uh, and his own deliverance from sin and what it took to go through that. Great class. Thanks for joining us today. And welcome to another Monday Morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. We're up and running. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's get started today. Um, wanted to start with um, an experience I had uh, a number of years ago. Well, not a number, but... Um, one of the things that I used to do as part of my uh, therapy practice is that I would take people out into the woods to do uh, ropes course group activities, which means if you've got, if you've got a lot of ropes and you've you got people out in the woods, it's amazing the little things you can set up and, and do for them in terms of team building and individual stuff. And sometimes they're 40 feet off of the ground, you know, standing on a little perch. And, um, but I, uh, a few years ago, I had a, uh, a group training, corporate training with uh, the group of managers from Whole Foods. And they were having a retreat, and so my ropes course day with them was going to be one day, one of the days of the retreat. And so one of the things that I'd like to do with them is that uh, something that I've done, like in girls' camp activities, is is the blind maze, where I'm going to run rope all around trees and underneath logs and all through all kinds of things, uh, and then it has dead ends on it and all you know, all kinds of stuff. Right? It's a maze. Uh, and then you blindfold them, and you start them at one end, and you start them by saying, okay, this is the lifeline. This is your life. Follow the lifeline wherever it leads, and you'll know that you're successfully at the end when there's somebody there for you. And off they go, okay? And they're just feeling their way through and 
having to get over things. And it's amazing the things that you can learn about people in that moment. Well, what I had as these group of managers were going through this uh, maze experience, I was talking to one of my instructors and we were just kind of observing some things. And then I looked over and one of the men who'd been following the lifeline, I, I don't know if he got frustrated or he just wanted to trust himself more. Anyway, he let go of the rope. And he just goes wandering off across this open area. This is actually at Camp uh, Cherokee. Um, and he's wandering around, and which I thought was kind of interesting. That And he's blindfolded, and he's not going slow. He's moving pretty quickly. Um, and then I happened, which, I, which was funny at first, but then when I looked up, I could see that he was heading towards a... Uh, uh, a river drop-off of about 25 feet down to the river at, at the bottom, okay? And he's just booking it. <laughs> and so it's one of those moments that I suddenly, I found myself sprinting <laughs> across this open field and nearly tackled him and kind of grabbing him just a few feet from where he would have gone, step off and go down. <laughs> and I grabbed him and pulled him back and I'm breathing hard, and he doesn't know. He's just wandering, okay? Um, and and I, so I pull him back, and I, I walk him back over, plug him back onto the rope, <laughs> and I said, this is the lifeline. Don't let go. <laughs> Follow it where it leads. Oh, okay, you know? And it's interesting. We had quite a little discussion with him uh, after about... And it turned out, uh, when I was talking to the rest of the managers, I said, do you ever do this at work? And he goes, no. And the rest of the managers are like, oh, yeah, this is exactly him. He takes off in his own direction without checking in with anybody. You know, and he just like, it just played out for him so that he could see it uh, really clearly. Um, but, but I got thinking about that, especially as, as we've been going through these, these chapters in Mosiah, that where there's this cycle that we keep watching of people being kind of free and then in bondage and then free and then in bondage and they keep having these moments. So I wanted to set up. Oh, there's a picture of what it can look like. Okay. Okay. So so one of the things that we've been asking when we start talking about agency and how we make choices and what that looks like in our life. So one of the questions we've been asking is how free is free? You know that I know that in the Book of Mormon it says men are instructed sufficiently that they can know good from evil. <coughs> and I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, the intent of that, but here's, here's my question I guess. When we talk about agency and choices what are the mortal blindfolds uh, that act against us in those choices? We're, we're supposed to be able to choose good from evil. What are some of the mortal blindfolds? So you just made a comment. You're not sure that men are instructed sufficiently. And that, well, in my mind, men are judged based on a standard of what they know. And so they are sufficiently instructed. But not everybody has the same instruction and not everybody has the same standard. And the trap is when you look at somebody else and try and assume yeah. that they're going to be a healthier standard. Or so 
you know, like that. So, so what, kind of, what kind of blindfolds might people have where it kind of blocks that kind of knowledge about that? Yeah. Um, if a child is raised with a, a painful father. Um, what well, the, 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 their growing up experience. Yeah, that they learn not to trust a father figure and then they can't really trust Heavenly Father or Jesus because of that trauma. Yeah, especially if it's like a traumatic kind of thing that it kind of changes, because we know that the, sometimes the permanent impact that trauma can have on somebody, so that would block what, if they're trying to listen to God but they don't trust God, then they may not necessarily trust their answer. So I think, so sometimes our, our, our background trauma can change that. What other blindfolds might there be? Cultural. Cultural, where you live and the, and the things that you see surrounding you all the time. What are your traditions? What have you been taught? What cannot be violated? Yeah, culture. What is right and what is wrong? Uh, because this is like I'm three and I'm four and I'm five and I'm watching everybody around me. Um, kind of interesting on Saturday night we had a uh, one I've been something I've been trying to do with Ward for a long time and this time we were able to pull it off we had a, a day of the dead celebration uh, Dia de los Muertos right Muertos okay and so we had little altars and an altar was simply a table with pictures of your family members and some of their favorite foods and stuff like that and then we gave people a chance to talk about uh, this was my this was my great aunt. Here's what she loved to do. Let me tell you about her. You know, and we were kind of celebrating that. And then we have lots of great food. And then we put on. And then there was some great music going on. We were kind of borrowing off the movie Coco a little bit. Uh, that really kind of goes into all of this. Um, but then the music started, and they're just the cultural stuff and the celebration. You could see how cultural it was from from a uh, Mexico standpoint, but that's what they're surrounded with. And it's like, there's their favorite holiday, bar none. They, this, is, this is really cool. And we're celebrating our ancestors along with great food. And we have to start dancing. It's just, you mm -hmm. spontaneously start dancing. So it was very cool. So cultural is another blindfold when we're, tr when we're, when we're trying to make decisions in life and choose between good and evil. Culture might tell you what a good choice is and what a bad choice is okay culture if you're a Palestinian means you should be throwing rocks at Israelis because that they are the oppressors and that if that's what you're hearing then you need to defend okay based on what you're okay what else other blindfolds that may may shape whether our ability to tell right and wrong or good and bad peer pressure peer pressure they, they culturally you hear it for a while and then maybe you get to be 12 and 13 and 14 and adults are stupid and and 13 year olds know more than adults do because my friend told me at school so that must be true cool <laughs> all right I used to think this but my but my 12 year old friend said that's stupid so I guess that's stupid what else you know can I think okay so peer pressure okay yeah What we see, what surrounds us. Okay, yeah, yeah. How about genetics? What if you are genetically predisposed to like some depression and anxiety? 
can that could that form whether what you think your choices are? Some people can do that. I just can't. I I try and do what they're doing, but I get anxious when I'm in public. Okay, I, I didn't have any trauma. I just have always been this way. And by the way, my mom was that way, and I think my grandma was that way. You know, so so genetics can play a role. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes our health thing will, will determine what choices we think we have. Uh, I, I think so. Okay? Yeah? Well, sometimes when people are becoming friends of the church, yes, yes, they're not investigating, they're friendly to the they church. They have been taught from the pulpit, if they've gone to a church, that we are so wrong, and their family members are so ingrained in this. And this is what I went up against in 1969. I was so I was really surprised at the pushback I got from cousins and uncles and my mother and everything. They, one of the things that upset my mother to no end, she went to sacrament meeting once before I joined the church. And we did not have a Christian flag because they always had a Christian flag in that. So the problem was that we didn't have a Christian flag. So we couldn't have been Christian. That's right. Well, we also don't have a cross, so that. And I, and I thought, yeah, the church I grew up in had an American flag and a Christian flag, but I never thought of it as meaning that somebody else isn't a Christian. Right. But things like that really are important, and it's really hard for some people to overcome the pushback that they get. Yeah, and, and, and we're trying to say, and I remember as a missionary, it's like, but I have the gospel. This will change your life. This is going to unite your family for eternity. And I'm going to give it. I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. And I'm standing here on your doorstep. And they go, I'm Catholic. <laughs> you know. And I'm going, wait. We're, we're presenting this wonderful thing to you. No, no. We're C of E. Church of England. <laughs> you know. Because, and so I'm not hearing. I'm not. It's a blindfold. That I'm not that causes me not to see things. That's why I like the idea of the blindfold. Yeah. So public laws, uh, like they, there's a lot of people who think that if it's the, if, it, if it's the law, it's okay. That's true. Yeah. If it's immoral, unethical, and evil. Or or science. Maybe my maybe my law is science. If science has said this or that theory says this, okay. Listen to all those. So, so when we, when somebody's going to make a choice, listen to all the pieces that go into then saying, how do I determine what is right and what is wrong? And so, so let, so let me. Uh, so, the question then is, especially if you think about our friends and 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 Joni, think about you being in the church and the things you learned at the front end to the things you're learning now. How does our, how does our we have the gift of agency, but does technically agency expand over time as we get more knowledge? Yes. Yeah. It was there. It's a gift. You have the ability to choose, but it's hard to be, have the ability to choose if, you're, if your range of options is really, really narrow. Agency is almost a talent, and it does grow as we exercise it in our. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think. Isn't it interesting that we talk about Adam and Eve in the garden, and God gave them their agency? Awesome. They can choose. But how much knowledge did they have? 
to really have know how many choices they really had. Isn't it, isn't it wild? That in a sense, when we talk about how um, agency was given to them, if you don't have choices, you really don't have, you, you don't have the ability to use your agency very well. If you only think you've got one thing to choose from. So, yes, ma'am, lady in the back. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can spit a little tube and send it off and they can tell you if you're you know, English or German or, or right. And uh, I looked out there the other day and uh, found out that my uh, heritage or my ancestry had changed. It had changed, but I, they could tell me that I was, instead of just coming from British Isles, I also came from you know, like Scotland and Ireland, mm -hmm. and, you know, just a little bit more detail. And it says, your ancestry hasn't changed, but our ability to tell you more details about it has increased. Ah. And so what you're saying here reminds me of that. Our, our, um, the things that we know that we can do, or our, our, um, So the more knowledge, the, in a sense, the more knowledge we have, the more agency we have. I mean, technically it's not true, we have agency, right? But our ability to use that agency expands with more knowledge. So, and that, that's why I think it's interesting in the, in the temple drama that we know isn't historical, it's symbolic, we're told it's symbolic. These words are put in Satan's mouth, but he's accurate in saying, it's important. You must, if you partake of this fruit, you will have the most precious gift, which is knowledge. If you have knowledge, you'll have the ability to choose. And you must have this right. And this is how Father gained his knowledge. Yeah. There's only one lie thrown in, thrown in there. You won't die. But most of everything he's saying is the importance of having knowledge. So you must partake of the fruit. By the way, which fruit is that? The fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And you've got to go through mortality to get this knowledge so that you can have the ability to use your agency to the full. Does that make sense? Okay, so, yeah. A more accurate translation of the Hebrew word, which in our scriptures is translated as knowledge, as experience. That is a better translation if you go and you look at the original Hebrew. And it makes perfect sense. Who in the, who do you know could be put in a perfect place like the Garden of Eden? Who have you experienced? You don't stay there. You don't want to go out. You don't want to explore. It's just the very, it's our likeness and image of God that would make us want to do that. See, now you're going to make me go back through the Septuagint and take a look at that. So, so, so you're saying that the Hebrew translation of knowledge is actually more accurately experience. experience Boy, I like that a lot. That, that, that really resonates, yeah. That, that program that's come follow up, uh -huh. KBYU, uh -huh. is a Hebrew scholar, and that's what she said when they were looking at it. Is, is that knowledge was actually experience. Yeah, 
Oh, Ooh, that's good. That's good. I like that. Okay, so so let me let me add to that then. Um, oh shoot, I thought I'd. I'm I'm sorry you're getting this all at once. It's not supposed to. If, if you get too much, then you read ahead. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I was listening to uh, President David Holland. Uh, David Holland is uh, Elder Holland's son, and he is the first tenured Latter Day Saint professor at the at the Harvard Theological Seminary, and he's also a stake president. So I heard a conversation with him this week, and he said something that at first kind of shocked me a little bit, and the more I've listened to it, the more I thought, oh, he's right on. So here's what he says. Because he was asked whether, whether human beings are basically good or bad. So do you think, you know, mankind is basically good or bad? Here's what he says. For me, it's not a question about whether human beings are intrinsically good or bad. I think that human beings are intrinsically incapable of change. Oh, he's a Latter-day Saint. Okay, listen to where he goes with it, though. I think that Mormon's metaphor, as found in Moroni 7, can a bitter fountain bring forth good water. Mormon then launches into his discussion of miracles. So I think the problem is not whether we think we're good or bad. It's that we think we're, in, we're capable of determining that without divine intervention. Now, I'm sorry if we got anybody here that's like into motivational speeches and, and coaching and stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, he says, I think we're, we're, uh, I think we're incapable. I did that wrong. I think we're incapable of determining whether we're good or bad without divine intervention. And I think we do ourselves a disservice assuming that the power to change is exclusively our own. Okay. And he goes on. Um, and it generates a lot of emotion. And he says, here's the problem with thinking that we can change just by changing the power of our mind. You know, so, sorry, who was the guy that wrote the book? Norman Vincent Peale. <laughs> okay. And it, and it generates a lot of emotional and spiritual turmoil when we can't change in ways that we want to. We try to change, and we can't. We try to change. Every January, here comes more New Year's resolutions, and we're trying to change and be better, and it lasts until about the 2nd of January. Okay? When culturally, we assume that we're not matching what we think a Latter-day Saint should look like. That it's simply a matter of your own will. That we should just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and on our belief, we can determine our own character. Then he says, we are more dependent on the goodness and grace of God, which means we are also required to be patient with the pace of our own development. And perhaps more important with the pace and development of those around us. Now, what I didn't include in this is that he said, is this simply the realm of Latter-day Saints? And he says, no. His belief is this is how people all over the world are changed. They make changes. They become better. We see people change. But it's the light of Christ that is that intervening peace, whether they know about Christ or not. That that's the light of Christ that drives us to be better than we were. And we assume that it's us. And then we beat ourselves up when we didn't do it well enough. Yeah. 
Yes, he's going to move us, right? Okay, so let me add one. So, so, so here's here's Paul's take on it, uh, and I'm using the uh, uh, little different translation here, uh, coming from the new translation we have. Uh, he says, "For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm mortal." And then he talks about his own bondage. I'm mortal, sold in sin, as a slave to sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the thing I hate to do. Think about the last time you were on a diet. <laughs> I don't want to eat bluebell. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do want to not be eating sugar. There's a cookie, you know. It's like, okay, okay. Uh, I I do not do what I want to do, but I do the thing that I hate to do. For I can desire to do what is right, but I'm not able to do it. For I do not do the good I desire to do, but the evil I do not want. That is what I do. Okay, you just, you just watch. Paul battling and, and everything that Paul was and just saying it's a constant struggle. It's a constant battle. Um, for I delight in the law of God in my inner self. I love, I love God. I love Jesus. I'm, in my inner self, I, I want to serve him. But I see another law in my members of my body. He talks about his uh, body. Waging war against the law in my mind. Making me captive. Okay, making me captive to the law of sin. And so he's talking about this internal bondage that he felt like he had at time. I want to do this stuff. I just keep doing this stuff. Then he says, therefore I am a slave to the law of God in my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, does that, that sound familiar? That, that, isn't that the battle that we're constantly doing? Yeah. He's, he coined the, he calls it the, er, the earthy man. And so when we read actually the natural man in, in the Book of Mormon, we've got Paul's earthy man that is sitting there as well. And I think that's part, it may be partly drawn from that, to be honest. Okay? He fights the same thing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether this works for other people. <clears throat> But I've had this thing for years. That I, if I get up and try to do the things I really don't want to do first thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I make a, I, I'm a big list maker, and I'll have the things down. One of the things I don't like to do is call up people and straighten something out on the phone. I just don't like to do that. I have Cindy do that, Richard. <laughs> so I make a list, and I put the stuff down, and I do those first things. And I do that on exercising, and I have found yeah. Do the things you really have decided in your mind you don't want to do. Right. After a while, after a discipline, those types of things become easier. Right. And that's, and so you hate to do it, but pretty soon you're able to do it. And not only that, once you've done those things, you can reward yourself for right. what you want to do. Right. And, and, and I, I think Brother Holland and others would say, and that is God kind of pushing you to be better. And we're getting this help, but man, we... 
we just have this eternal struggle between, and, and the problem is when we allow our, our humanness to get in the way, we end up in bondage. We end up with blindfolds that really get in the way of us really wanting to make the changes we want to make. Such a battle, okay? All right, so that said, so, so let's, let's now, so, so take that idea, this battle that we have, to not be blindfolded and not be in bondage by our own traditions, our own experiences, our own body that doesn't want to get out of bed, you know, all of those kind of things. Um, let's hop over to uh, Mosiah 23. Can, Cindy, can you see that back there? Not at all. <laughs> well, you're not wearing your glasses, so how... <laughs> Are you are, are you in bondage to your glasses? <laughs> Callie, can you see it? I can see it. Okay. If you have any questions, ask Callie. Okay. Oh, that's better, I think, isn't it? Okay. Oh. All right. It's it's early and we're older, right? If we if those lights go out, we're toast. Okay. What, I, what I'm doing here, we were talking about uh, Alma and baptism last time, and I'm hopping over a few chapters because I want to continue the story with Alma, even though I know Limhi and that experience is right in the middle, but I want to continue the Alma story, okay? All right, so they, they're hanging out in Helam. Uh, verse 1, Alma, having been warned of the Lord that the armies of Noah would come upon them, Having made it known to his people, they gather up everything and they head off into the wilderness uh, and they, they fled for eight days. They come to a land, a land of pure water. That we're gonna, pure water is an important thing if you are in, in, in terms of the law of Moses and baptisms and those kind of things. It's got to be pure water. Okay. Um, they pitch their tents, they till the ground, they become industrious. Now, here, here's, the, here's the moment. They want Alma to be a king. We like kings. We, or, we're, or at the very least, we are conditioned to, to have a king. King David, King Saul, kings, right? And listen to, his, listen to his description. And the people were desirous that Alma should be their king, for he was beloved of his people. And he's going to say, it's not expedient that we should have a king. You can't esteem one flesh another. And then he says, if that, it'd be great, verse 8, if you could always have just men to be your kings. But listen to his, his argument here. And think about what Paul and, and Brother Holland were just saying. But remember the iniquity of King Noah and his priests. And then, then this. I myself was caught in a snare. Ooh, listen to the listen to the uh, kind of the bondage, captivity, blindfold that he's seeing. I myself was caught in a snare and did many things which were abominable in the sight of the Lord, which caused me sore repentance. Now, when he's in the midst of doing abominable things, 
as one of the priests of Noah, would he have seen it as abominable? No, this is what priests do. We get to make lots of money and we get to have uh, multiple wives and multiple concubines and we get to hang out and be rich and this is, this is good. And I'm younger and so I'm learning from who? Senior guys like Amulon. Okay, I'm one of the younger priests here. So he's doing all these things. So at the moment, things are awesome. Okay, and then when, when the blindfold starts to come off, then what? Ooh. Now he says, I recognize that I was in a snare and I didn't know it. Now, there's a lot of terminology that he could have used. Why would he use the word snare? Why is snare so powerful? How does a snare operate? It slaps you down and where you can't escape. Right? So it will hold you. What else? You had... Deny you your agency, but you'll have to make an, an effort to use it. To, to get out of it, yeah. Also, a snare is usually set and then covered. And covered. And then you go into it, it doesn't come get you. <laughs> yes. You just walk right into it, and then you figure out, oops, I made a mistake. Yeah, if you're on the right path, you're probably fine. But if you're going to walk down this path, that snare is sitting there hidden, right? You, and, and you're right. It didn't come get you. You found it. Yeah. It made it comfortable snare. Yeah. So, well, uh, Book of Mormon is going to call it flax and cords. It's kind of a soft snare. Yeah. Along with that, a snare is usually set by someone else. You didn't set the snare. Somebody else did. And they're just lying in wait. Because you would not be caught in your own snare. No, because you'd know where the snare was, right? So you're caught actually in somebody else's snare. And then once you're caught in the snare, who controls you? Whoever set the snare. Okay? So I, I, love, I love, if you listen to the terminology, and you've got to think, when he's talking about this, uh, you think yeah, this is how they're catching animals to eat as they're traveling in the wilderness? They're, they're figuring out where the water hole is and the animals show up there. And so they lay snares. And they're catching animals all the time. So he's, when he's saying to them, hey, I was caught in a snare, but who set the snare? King Noah. I was caught in his snare until I recognized where I was. Yeah. You know, I love cashews. Uh-huh. I like to get them in Costco. And I know what aisle they're on. <laughs> I know where the snare is. Are you saying that sometimes we get caught in a snare, we get out of the snare, and sometimes we go back down the same snare, same pathway? Yes. Okay. Now, I can avoid that. Right, just not going down that, that, that pathway, right? Yeah. Okay. This is the discussion I have a lot with my guys that struggle with pornography. You know, we're talking. No, you don't. <laughs> if if, if ca cashews are your worst, your members war against you with cashews, and and she does. She she will eat them, and then what? And by the way, then what do you do when you ha when the cashews are like half gone, and now you're feeling sick and upset? I send them to your yes, you do. 
She sends them to the office where this one and that one won't eat them. Oh, I do. But I try not to eat them because I have the same snare. You have the same snare. I bought some cookies and some chocolate. I'm going to send them to the office. Guys, you should try this. Oh, I don't do sugar. No, I'm not doing that either. <laughs> I bought a bunch of Halloween candy for our office. Guess who ate it? <laughs> my, my members were roaring against me. I wondered where that went. <laughs> <laughs> I even bought another bag. Somebody must eat this. And then I did. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, so sometimes, isn't it interesting that, that if, you want, if you're trying to avoid bluebell, are there snares on the bluebell, bluebell aisle? Oh, heck yes. I mean, we, were, we, were, we, we did our deal this week. There's a brand new HEB. Oh, good, we're going to go down to the brand new HEB. Do you realize how many snares are at HEB? Oh, my God. Gosh, exponential snares for all kinds of stuff, right? And, and so, but, but we will put ourselves in, our, in those positions and, and we'll say, uh, like Brigham, that anecdotally, I don't know if it's completely true or not, he loves cigars, anecdotally, and he would put it in his pocket and he would say, okay, today who's stronger, cigar or Brigham? Brigham, you know put it back in. He was battling all of that. And when we put ourselves in places to walk down the same path, great analogy, okay, sometimes we get caught by the same snare over and over and over. And we know better. But we sort of don't. So he says, and I did many things which were abominable in the sight of the Lord, which caused me sore repentance. There, nevertheless, after much tribulation, the Lord heard my cries. He answered my prayers. He made me an instrument. I, in this I don't glory. Okay. Now, here's what he's going to say in verse 12. Now I say unto you, ye have been oppressed, snared, captured by King Noah, and have been, and have been in bondage to him and his priests. And have been brought into iniquity by them. Therefore you were what? Bound. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Okay. You were bound with the bands of iniquity. And then 13. And as you have been delivered by the power of God out of these bounds. And bonds. Bounds. Power, bonds. Even out of the hands of King Noah and his people. And also from the bonds of iniquity. Ah, so watch what he's going to do. And, and he's doing it, but Mormon is writing this in a way that you're going to see two kinds of bonding. There's the bonding of... Bondage. Yes, of the people by, by a king or Lamanites or whoever. And then he's going to equate that to personal bondage. In bondage to... Sin, And he's going to run this, and we get this parallel thing through this chapter that is remarkable. And by the way, ain't no way Joseph Smith, quickly writing in harmony, trying to get this whole book done in five weeks, would have got this delicate interplay just right off the top of his head, because he's just like a really smart guy in a trance. <laughs> by the way. All right. Okay. 
also are the bonds of iniquity. Even so, I desire that you should do an interesting thing when you recognize what the trap or the snare that you have been in. He's going to say, I would that ye should stand fast in this liberty wherewith you have been made free. So the idea, when did they, when did this happen for them? When did this group of people get to be introduced to see the, see the snare, see the bond, see the bondage, and then see the liberty? Where'd that happen? So, I'm not exactly sure. The liberty comes when he says, don't have a king. Be responsible for your own sins. So we're not going to bond you as a people. When they had Zenith as a king, he was... He did good. Relatively good. Yeah. They were still his subjects and therefore in bondage to him. He just made the bondage good. Yes. I think that's a great point. So, but when did they recognize the iniquity that they had been in? But they didn't see it necessarily then, did they? They were they were doing it. We don't know how much they understood. But then they start coming out of of the city of Noah and they start going out to the waters of Mormon and they start hearing from Alma who starts, as he's teaching, look at what he's doing. He's pulling the scales back. He's pulling off the blindfolds and saying, here's the truth. Let me tell you what's real. And it's not about the law of Moses. It's about the doctrine of Christ. And, and they start to get it. So they both got the light of Christ. And I think some of them were deeper in the tank with Noah. Probably. Probably, yeah. But what they were all lacking is, therefore, what? Where, where does it come? This is a little bit of a problem. But what do I do about it? And that's where Alma comes in and says, Abednego told us what to do. Yeah. And, and I'm going to tell you, but isn't it interesting that at that moment they could have they could have still said, "I know you're telling this, but our culture, tradition, our blindfold says that's baloney. We're out of here." But something started to happen, and it happened like with with the, the young man that I was talking about at the beginning of class. He just came into our ward to look at Mormonism from a distance. I'm interested, it's kind of an intellectual exercise, I'm just going to hang out. And I'm going to read the Book of Mormon to see what I think, from a distance. And then what happens? Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, the light of Christ, starts to light him up, and then he's able to open up, and he's watching, and he's talking about, he's not using this language, that he's feeling stuff, and he's experiencing stuff that he wasn't supposed to, I'm not supposed to be feeling this. I'm not supposed to be crying when I read the Book of Mormon. It's an intellectual exercise. This is all it should be. How come I'm weeping? What's, what's the problem here? It's another snare. Yeah, and at first he would have been taught that. His past experience with the church would have said, what, what, what's a, what is it they say on some of the churches? Don't read the Book of Mormon. This is how they get you. <laughs> They'll snare you. Pull you into this cult. Okay? Alright? So, he's saying, stand fast in the liberty wherewith you have been, been made free. Now you can begin to see, remember when we back in, in, in a few chapters earlier when they said, 
when they thought about the waters of Mormon and they were at the waters of Mormon and their experiences at the water of Mormon, how grateful they were. That place became sacred to them. That's where the blindfolds were removed. Yeah. I've heard it said that when you take something away from people, you need to have something to replace. And that's what you're talking about with this young man. He has a realizing that that's why getting involved. Yeah. I, I realized no one should join the church because people were nice to them. No. Or anything like that. But all of that goes in with it. In the Holy Ghost and the studying and the new way of thinking. And, uh, that's and, 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 it take, and it takes time for that to slowly begin to change. Especially based on how much cultural blindfolds and stuff you've had in the past. That's why, that's why I love Brother Holland's idea that says man intrinsically doesn't change himself if he's going from good to better, that there's something else that's work at work and it is God calling them home. God changing them through the light of Christ, through whatever. Okay? And as we do that we feel, we now we're going to stand fast in liberty. Awesome. Okay? Yeah. Well, this seems to be the precursor of what Mosiah institutes after all of his sons refuse the kingdom. He's going to have, I'm pretty confident a combat with the Alma the elder and they're, they're, and the elder is going to say, well, listen, what we did in the wilderness, we figured. Yeah. The Lord was telling us, okay. Yeah. And, and, and Limhi, and Limhi's in the room. And he goes, oh, oh heck yeah. <laughs> My dad was like really evil. And look at what it took for us to get here. Wouldn't you love to be in that meeting? And that's coming in the next chapter. We're not getting there today. But that next meeting where Mosiah says he's going to pull all, everybody together. And here's the Alma people and the Limhi people and the Zarahemla people. And they're all together going, wow. And then Mosiah's going to say, what do you think about not doing a king? Ah, let's, let's do judges instead. Ah, okay. We're going to reverse Israel. Israel went from judges to kings. We're going to go from kings to judges. We're just going to do it opposite. Okay, yeah. So the verse that keeps coming to my mind about this process is Peter 12, 27, where he talks about how he invites men to come unto him. Yes. He'll show unto them their weakness. And, you know, it's the experience Moses had when he went into the presence of the Lord, and all of a sudden he knew. Now I know, me, son of Pharaoh. God is great, and nobody else is great. And I'm not, I'm not that great. Yeah. More powerful than the adversary because he knew what was possible. He had the motivation. Yeah, but but there has to be a moment again when the scales are removed from our eyes. And now I see. And now I think about the temple. Our eyes are now open. When they were closed, we didn't see very many options. When our eyes were closed, we had very little freedom to use our agency because we didn't see what choices we had. But when our eyes are open, now he says you're going to see all the options, but you're going to choose to stand in the liberty rather than take steps to send you down the path where the snares are. Okay? Now, again, here's the, here's the beautiful literary way that, uh, that Mormon has set this up. Because uh, I'm sure he's just drawing from records that Alma wrote later. Okay? So, so in the middle of this wonderful discussion about standing free in the liberty and all this kind of stuff, right? Then what's going to happen? So they're going to do that. 
and they're going to watch over. And Alma was their high priest, uh, and he consecrated, in 17, he consecrates priests. Uh, they watch over their people and they nourish them. And now they're, they're, they're called, they called the land Helam. Oh, okay, it was Waters of Mormon. Uh, they like to name it after prominent people. This is the land of Helam, and we're having a good time, and they're multiplying, they're prospering. Then what happens? Now, here comes the Lamanites. I'm going I'm to come back to that in a second. No, let me. I'm, I'm going to go in order. 21. This is one of those verses I'm not. I, I, uh, I struggle with. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest. Because in Mormon's commentary, and he's going to drop in his his uh, editorial comments. Because what's happening is the Lamanites under Amulon, one of the high priests, is about to show up and enslave them for a while. This great group of people that love each other and are taking care of each other are about to go back into bondage for a period of time. And this time... The Lord isn't warning them that they're coming. This time, he allows the army to, without a warning. He didn't tell Alma. And it just, they just show up. Now, here's Mormon's take on it. This is Mormon's editorial view of it, at least as, as we have it recorded in the Book of Mormon. Nevertheless, 21, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people, yea, he trieth their patience, and their faith. And I'll admit, I struggle sometimes with the idea that the Lord will willingly inflict pain on good people just because he wants to teach them a lesson. Isn't that the purpose of this whole life? Is for us to gain that experience? Does God do it or does mortality do it? I think so too. I don't. I think so too. Right. Now, so, but but so, so let me take a step back. If you're a parent and your kids are doing the right thing, do you wake up in the morning saying, "I think I'm going to run them through a lot of pain just to teach them a lesson"? Okay. Well, I think with Amaron, he was part of the scenario of all the priests and their sins and all that kind of thing. So it was already set up to live by their consequences and have those consequences, even though Amaron found them. I don't think the Lord orchestrated that. I think he allowed it to happen as part of the consequences. That, that other people have their free agency, mm -hmm. and sometimes in their free agency, they will do things to us that leave us in bondage for a while. Yes. And we encourage them because they're of age to go out and become an adult. Yeah. We want them to have those experiences, right? Rather than just sit in our basement. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Are we not inflicting pain on them? Are we? Or are we sending them experience where we, where we know there will be painful experiences? Yes. And then, so, so then are we causing them to suffer 
or do we suffer with them while they struggle? And, 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 and I think... Uh, you, yes, it is. They, they, you did this to me. <laughs> and you're saying, no, I didn't want you to get hurt. I, I needed you to learn and grow, but I knew at times it would, life would be painful to you, and I'm weeping with you. Rather than saying, you're doing really well. I think I'm just going to hit you. <laughs> or I'm going to do, uh, I'm, I'm going to create bad things to happen to you. As opposed to saying, mortality is tough. And so does he cause us to suffer or does he suffer with us when we are hurting? Well, see, I think, and, and, and the way that Mormon has written this, he seeth fit to chasten his people. Now, if ch by chasten, and it's hard to know what was in his mind. If chasten means he will be the agent of pain, then I'm, I'm having a hard time with that. If he says uh, he, he allows mortality to chasten them and I will weep with them, then I'm on board. It's just a little bit unclear sometimes in, in this. Yeah. So the archaic definition of chasten is discipline. Yeah, I looked up that too. Yeah. Yeah. Although he worked really hard at trying to soften some of that. I'm going to give you manna. I'm going to do stuff like that. But yeah. Okay. So I'm trying to think of a metaphor that helps with this. I'm way in line with what you're thinking. I don't think that we are inflicting pain on our children. No. We wouldn't do it as parents. I don't think perfect parents do that. No. But we do not have them learning how to walk out on the pavement No. But we do kind of go, okay, I'm right here to help I know that you're going to head off with blindfolds and who knows where you go. Okay? And it's hard. They've got to have those experiences, but we're not throwing them on the pavement just so they'll learn. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So. I'm going to say something that might be a bit controversial, but I don't think that would be new. For, that, that, that would be new for you. <laughs> so I think that this debate about like this conversation around like agency. Yeah. What is God responsible for? You know, did He put our, you know, all the trials that we have in our path? Yeah, because He just needed you to learn it. So I'm going right. to. I'm going to create the trial for you. Right. Like you encounter some, you know, you encounter somebody else, and then they do something to you, and then that, you know, this question of, well, did God put that person there to do this thing next? Why did He put this person in my life to make my life miserable? I don't think that that's a sustainable way to view um, the plan of salvation. Our <laughs> no. and agency as we as we have it, and children of our heavenly, loving heavenly Father. I think an easier way to think about it would be more like God has given, our Heavenly Father has given us the tools 
to be able to make choices. Yep. But he's not necessarily the one that's responsible for the choices that, the ch that his children are making. Right? right, right. So everybody's going to go out and make their own choices, and we kind of have our, omnip you know, our omnipotent, omniscient, loving Heavenly Father right. knows the past and he knows the end, but he doesn't... Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's dictating every because God knows every single little detail right. of every little thing that's going to happen. So he placed my neighbor next to me that was going to be obnoxious with the dogs barking all night long. Right. It wasn't about their choice. It was about me. It was about having those people move there with those dogs to keep me up at night to, so that I would learn patience. No, I think I think the really hard part here, though, okay, and this is where the controversy controversy is going to come. Well, in. you're doing good so far. What I'm going to say is that if you accept the argument that I've just made, then what would follow would be that if he's only given us the tools, then that means that he's not responsible neither for the bad yeah. nor the good. Right. Right, and that that part of not being responsible for the good, I think that that's the, that's the hard part here because. We all want to believe that, like, when we win the lottery, oh my gosh, Heavenly Father made me win the lottery, right? Or whatever it is, choose your medicine, right? I know, I know. Heavenly Father put me in line to meet with this person. And, I, and I'm not saying that necessarily that's... The, all of those events have to be excluded. Maybe that's right, good, that's right. But on the large, whatever is happening to you is a consequence of what, uh, uh, you know... Of just people on earth exercising. That mortality sometimes really stinks. <laughs> and, and mortality, you, you know, and I. No, I, 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 I agree with you. I think sometimes, uh, and maybe it's part of our cultural heritage, and maybe I'm going to go controversial with you. It's part of our cultural heritage to say, and I heard it in testimony meeting several times yesterday. God is in charge of every single little detail of our life. Every single little detail. And I, and I think, and I, I struggle with that idea. Uh, I think he knows the plan. I think he knows the arc of our life. I think he knows the direction that it's going. I think he weeps with us when we are sad. But if you're going to give him, if you're going to give him that much power, you're going to have a heart. Well, he has that much power. If you're going to give us the ability to grow, then you can't have him be aware of every person that's going to give you a fender bender or cheat you because he knew it was going to happen. Then you've got to say, well, why would God do this to me? I was trying to be good. You know, these people in Helam could be thinking the same thing. We were trying to be good. How come he sent those guys? If you I think it does. I think it does. But but I know I'm pushing a little bit about our cult, our culture, and and our and our and our funerals and everything is based on this idea. And having to step back from that a little bit says the Lord loves us more than that, <laughs> and He wants us to grow 
He doesn't have to, ch I don't think he chastens and punishes, but I think he allows the discipline of mortality to do that and then he weeps with us when we struggle. Is that okay? Okay, yeah, here and here. I don't think our finite mind can understand how God can see everything. Right, right. And, and maybe we should get tripped up on that. The main thing, and, and to talk about, you know, all the situations or not, it doesn't matter. If God put us all in a jar and put us in a jar, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice image. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we need to have faith in Him, have trust in Him, worship Him, yeah. give Him credit for Him helping us. Appreciate the fact that he loves us. Yeah. And, and again, whenever I'm, my standard had really become increasingly when I'm trying to decide what God will do or what, what, what he won't do. At the very least, I'm trying to use my, my limited understanding as a parent. And sometimes that first question is would I do this as a parent? Would I do this as an ideal parent? And then do I think a perfect parent would do that? And that's, again, that's imperfect, but that's where I start from, and then I have to, I have to balance that. I, I just think this is one of those questions, and, and by the way, guys, this is, the big, this is the big one in Christianity and religion. This is the biggest of the big, and this goes all the way back through antiquity as far as you can go. Why does God let good things happen to bad people, or bad things happen to good people? And we don't know, and this is it, and, and so we some of our culture is built around trying to figure it out. Yeah. I've been reading uh, Stop Yeah. Yeah, yeah, The Road Less Traveled with Scott Peck. Yes. And he, uh, he says that uh, our unwillingness to uh, be. Uh, at any rate, our laziness is, is really what Satan uses. Yeah, and he's going to use that to his advantage if he's going to if he's going to sidle up to the to our members that want to do bad stuff, right? So I get it. So anyway, I, we're we're closing down on on time here, but. Um, Here's, here's what Mormon is going to go on to explain here. For behold, I will show you that they were brought into bondage. And by the way, they weren't warned. Uh, and none could deliver them but the Lord their God, even the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it came to pass that he did deliver them and he did show forth his mighty power unto them. And great were their rejoicings. Okay, so, so it's going to be in this case it's going to become abundantly clear because of revelation to Alma that says, in this case, I will intervene. But notice how he intervenes. He didn't immediately pull him out of this. In fact, uh, I'm let me finish with this. Because, okay, so they're going to be put under bondage. It is nice that we're familiar enough with these stories and stuff. We don't have to go line by line through all of this. But uh, Amulon, uh, the other priest, knew Alma. So he exercised authority. He puts task over him. Uh, and uh, it came to pass that the Lord, in verse 13, came to them in their affliction, saying, lift up your head and be a, 
good comfort. I know the covenant I made. I covenant with my people, and I will deliver them out of bondage. When? And my timing. <laughs> okay. All right. And 14. And I will ease the burdens which are put on your shoulders that you cannot feel them while you are in bondage, uh, that you may know of a surety that I, the Lord, do visit my people and their afflictions. I don't necessarily remove their afflictions, but I'm going to visit you in your afflictions. Okay, now, here's my question. Come back to the, this top here. I will ease the burdens put upon your shoulders that you can't feel them. How is that going to happen? Here's how it happens. Remember their baptismal covenant. Let's go back to Alma 15. If somebody... So here we are back in 15. Okay? Oh, I went to the wrong place. Now let's just say it. Oh, there it is. Was I 18? Got it. Okay? Remember their, their baptismal covenant. This is their baptismal uh, rep, uh, baptismal interview. Okay? You, here's the waters of Mormon. Your desire is to come into the fold. You're called to be his people. And you're, and you're called to do what? You've got to be willing to do what? Oh, and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Okay, let me flip it back. Here's what they're saying. Um, so we're back in, in 24. 14, and I will ease the burdens which shall be put on your shoulders. How will that happen? They bear each other's burdens. That was the covenant you made. That's how it happened. And I'm sure there might have been, and it's possible that they might have had some superhuman strength and now they're carrying 100-pound bags of corn or something and, uh, and they, uh, they're not feeling it so much. That's probably, there might, might have been some of that. But more than that, how is it that their burdens are being eased? Helping each other. And they made that baptismal covenant to do it. And he uses the same language to make sure you get it. That, I think, is really cool. So when we talk about maybe, maybe God intervening in our struggles, and he weeps with us, the, the next one, I'm going to ease your burdens. What else am I going to do as part of the baptismal covenant? I will mourn with those that mourn. Part of how God weeps with us is there are people around us that weep with us. We are his agents to do that. And we covenant to do that as part of the fold of God. Yeah. So in the world of politics we learn that it's really hard to harness a whole bunch of people behind a cause but it's very easy to harness a whole bunch of people in unity against a cause. Yeah. So these people as, as he tries to forge them into a Zion society the Lord allows them to have adversity so that they can unite in opposition to that adversity or in defense against that adversity. Could could easily be shorter path. It could easily have been that way. In other words, because we've got this opposition coming from Lamanites and taskmasters and stuff like that, 
it becomes more sharpened that this is how it needs to be done. I, I, there's some truth to that, yeah. I think, too, it brings in uh, letting them uh, experience this again uh, with the wicked priest. I think it also sharpens their idea that you get under that kind of domination again. It really is, don't second guess is like the, um, the uh, most people second, kept second guessing coming out of Egypt. And so he's allowing them to that's right. This is not what you want. That's right. And and Mormon and Alma want you to see look at this look at this bondage and capture by Lamanites. See it for the metaphor that it is. Cuz this really isn't about Lamanites and bondage. This is really about what? The bondage of sin. And that we can be put under bondage by, by our sins, by the, our members that, of our body that war against us. And that we can stand fast in the liberty. Sometimes that's in a physical sense, but really in a spiritual sense. That's what this is about. This is really has very little to do about physical bondage. It has everything to do about sin. Well, like right now, people, so many people are choosing to get into uh, drugs and pornography. And they're bringing our nation into bondage. Yeah, and, and they're trapped, you know, and those, those that I see struggling with that, they have a hard time getting outside of that arena because it, it holds them bonded, it holds them bonded so much. So, okay, uh, let's go ahead and, and wrap this up. Good discussion. Um, again, can, can I just say again, think again how we tend to look at the Book of Mormon as it's plain to read and we can quickly read through it and hustle through it and, and we get a spiritual strengthening from the Book of Mormon. And that, that's very, very true. But look at the depth. Look at the depth. that This is a deeper book than the book has ever given credit for. And it's subtle in the way that this stuff is done. And our spirit recognizes it and warms to that and gets strengthened by it. But intellectually, let's use this to open up our knowledge about, again, this is not about physical bondage. And, and if we learn from that, then we move forward. So, Okay? Um, bearing my testimony, this is, uh, this is really, really good stuff. And I think it's worth going back to look at it for what it is. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.